as I continue my inquiry into appreciative embodying. Today we're going to hear about the neuroscience behind why we don't do what we should, what we know we should do. And we're going to hear the difference between behaviours and habits and what practices we can adopt to form new habits. We're going to learn or understand more about the iterative mindset and why individuals who have this mindset succeed. And we're going to find out how we can use behaviour design to set ourselves up for greatness. Hello, I want to welcome you to this show, Positivity Strategist. If you're joining us for the first time, a really big warm welcome. And to all you lovely people who have been supporting Positivity Strategist for for almost five years, it's always my pleasure to be able to connect with you. So my name's Robin Stratton-Burkessel, and this is episode 120. Welcome and please enjoy this lovely conversation. I'm excited to introduce Kyra Bobinet. Kyra, welcome to Positivity Strategist. Thank you, Robin. It's wonderful to be here. A few words to provide a context for Kyra. She's an innovator entrepreneur at her core. She started doing entrepreneurial things in grade school, like designing and selling custom buttons, and continued to demonstrate her innovative entrepreneurial strengths, designing for herself amazing experiences and opportunities. For example, she ran a nonprofit that dramatically reduced incarcerated youth recidivism. She pioneered a proven stress-reducing mindfulness program for a very large health insurance provider, and she developed a patented clinical algorithm. These are just some examples. And then in 2013, Kyra founded and continues to run the disruptive wellness tech startup, which is called Engaged In. For her achievements and accomplishments, Kyra received the Harvard T.H. Chan Innovator Award, which is the highest honour presented to an alumna of the Harvard Public Health Program. Kyra, congratulations on all those accomplishments to date. Thank you, Robin. (laughs) And I'd like to start um, at a personal level. I'd like to ask my guest to share a story. I mean, you know, the world revolves on stories, right? Yes, yes. And the story that you choose to share, and this is just my, an impromptu um, invitation to you, is anything that you care to share about something or some person or some event in your background that influenced you to be who you are and to do the work that you do? Mm. Yeah, so the one that comes to mind that I think was very setting for where I find myself today was when I was a first year medical student. I was, you know, very, very successful by worldly terms. I was at a top medical school in the United States. I was the president of my class. I was, um, I had received the Dean's Prize for Cancer Research. I was doing uh, research with, uh, you know, cancer progression models in the lab and really had everything from the outside, had everything going for me and really nothing seemed wrong, but, but there was this kind of nagging feeling of having departed from something very 
important uh, inside. And, and, and I was kind of just living very much outside and in my head and, and that kind of thing. So you talk about embodiment in terms of appreciative embodiment. You know, I was not appreciating anything and I was not embodying anything that was true for me. And I didn't know this though, because I was young and kind of disconnected from myself. And it turns out that one night I had uh, written a poem that really wrote back to me. And I started this sort of, you know, inquiry into what my path was, what what my truth was. And, and it was very disruptive to what I thought I was going to be. I thought I was going to be a surgeon and cure cancer and all these things. And in fact, I started to be exposed to very different people in even the medical community around me. For example, two students in the class above me had started a program for young people who were incarcerated in the juvenile hall and they were going there every Tuesday night to teach you know, health education, you know, sexually transmitted diseases, um, different things about the body anatomy, that kind of thing. And in doing that, it really woke me up to a, how non-different all of us humans are, how, how similar we are, even across every possible physical, you know, quality that we might have. These were young men, these were young men of color. These were young men who grew up in a city. I grew up mostly in the country. Um, they, you know, had a gang culture. I never belonged to a gang. So those things would separate us, except I felt very connected to them. And in, in the years that have, uh, rolled on, you know, I, I, I received a, so I started a program for them with my best friends from medical school and we ran it for 10 years. And I still hear from these boys who are now men in their 30s. And one of them just wrote to me and said, I'm going to run for Congress in New Hampshire. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, whoa, you know, wow, I didn't know you'd gone to that there. And another one is running a, a glass uh, studio in Seattle that's very um, successful. And, and so it was this kind of awakening to serving others in a way around behavior change that really woke me up. And I've been doing it ever since, just in different forms. Mm. Yeah, it's that waking up. Mm. Yes. <gasps> Wonderful. Um, that's a very powerful story and the fact that you keep in touch with these people. Yeah. So your qualifications, Kyra, include the medical de- degree, we've, we've referred to that, and the Master's in Public Health. So help us understand the value of why you then went into the Master's in Public Health and why did you choose it and how are you applying it today? Yeah. And I, I think for most of us, there's these kind of surprising twists, you know, and, and once you start to really, you know, inquire within yourself what your truth is and what you uh, really care about, it it can sometimes recorrect your course. So another sort of course correction that happened to me after that was I was concluding my time at the nonprofit and it had, I was, I was wanting it to uh, merge with another organization, which then put myself out of a job. Um, I went on to the board of directors, but I wanted to go back to residency to practice medicine. But at that point, I didn't know that it was like, you know, squeezing a square peg into a round hole. I had changed. And so Mm -hmm. I started going back to the clinic and I started seeing patients 
And there was something just kind of off about it. And it really crystallized in this, this last patient that I remember treating. He had come in, he had, was a sort of middle-aged man and he could barely walk because he had a gouty toe that had uh, flared up on his right foot. And it was very painful and very red. And we started talking about it. And of course, I knew exactly how to treat it in terms of the medication. And I'm literally writing the prescription. And he's talking about how he got here. And he said, well, you know, doc, about three days ago, I did methamphetamine. And then I haven't been to sleep since, which means that he got dehydrated. And which means that I was sitting in front of this toe that was basically this whole endpoint of all these other behavioral events. And I was more attracted to the behaviors. I was more attracted to how could you not get here? Um, how could I go to what's going on in your brain that you would even do meth? You know, those kinds of things were much more intriguing for me. And so I, I kind of stopped the whole residency pursuit and I said, you know, what, it, what do I really want? What, what tool would really help me to ask that question and to pursue that. And there's really no, you know, behavior change graduate program. You know, there, there's a lot of different disciplines that all kind of touch on it. But for me, public health, given that I already had the MD, was the shortest route to really getting out there and being a professional in this space. Mm -hmm. Wow. As you're telling that very powerful story, what came up for me, Kyra, is... Um, and I think this is one of the issues in the medical profession and many other professions that we lose sight of the wholeness of the person. Mm. You know, we treat one, we treat one aspect of it, but we don't look at the wholeness. So the, the person in the context, in the lifestyle. So mm -hmm. again, you know, another wake up call, another amazing insight that you wanted to get to the, you know, the root of, of what it is that, I don't know, gets people behaving and believing in certain things. That's right. That's right. And and there's a whole there's a whole cascade of everything that that when you when you're treating an illness, there's a whole behavioral cascade that happened mm. before that. Mm, that's it. Yeah. So as you alluded to, the focus of this um, season of my podcast is about appreciative embodying, and it's an exploration for me. <laughs> and um, the title of your book really interested me because its title is Well-Designed Life, 10 Lessons in Brain Science. So this book is about applying design thinking as a process to bring an understanding of how our brains work to help us be the designers of our life. And I then add to that, how do we show up in our bodies? You know, what are the practices? What is it that we're doing on a daily basis that enables and facilitates us to be who we really want to be? Um, and your book gives us some amazing tools and, and background, some science and some practices to do that. So just the title itself and the fact that you're, you're bringing an understanding of to how our brains work to design our lives, it sounds like you could be helping us to become very advanced human beings. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I'm thinking, you know, highly evolved. But I'm really wondering about that because the stories that you share in your book, they're so touching. You know, I, I had tears in my eyes on a number of occasions. And I'd like you to, um, and where I come with that 
I don't think it's really about, um, I mean, it is about, you know, being a forward thinking and advanced person and being, um, you know, designing our lives. But I think it's also about the real simple things. So I want you to share the story of Mrs. Williams in your book. Do you know what mm, I'm talking about? Yes, I do. Yes. Dear, dear teacher, Mrs. Williams. So I was a you know, third year medical student. And in that year, you rotate on the hospital wards, the, the, the inpatient hospital floors. And she had come in to the emergency room with her two daughters and was short of breath. And in the workup of her case, we realized that she had all the signs and symptoms of a very dangerous you know, condition uh, called pericardial effusion. And so steps were taken to admit her, to get her to uh, a surgeon who could withdraw the fluid from around her heart because it can cause the heart to seize and stop and you can kill you immediately. And so, you know, once she was in the clear from there, then she was my patient in the internal medicine ward to really understand, okay, why did she have this? There's a couple different causes, one of which could be cancer related. And so, you know, she was supposed to only be there for maybe a week to get all these tests done. And then, then normally once we find out what's going on, somebody can go home and follow up with treatment. Unfortunately for her, she had a number of uh, you know, errors that the hospital would make, you know, that the fluid that was taken from her heart for her, from her heart was lost by the lab. Um, the, the, you know, thing, the bone marrow that was taken was left out overnight. So it was no longer good. Like the, there's all kinds of things. She just had the worst luck of all these mishaps, not her fault whatsoever and not any one particular person's fault. It was just, just errors all over the place. And understandably, she and her daughters got so angry and so livid. You know, they were pretty tough as nails people anyway. You could see that they were bonded. You know, this was a single mom who was a warrior who had survived everything, survived her husband leaving. Uh, these daughters had been abandoned by their dad. And the three of them just kind of held together in this triad of female power and they were there for each other. And these these young women uh, were there in her their mother's hospital room. Every time I would come to round on her at five in the morning, one of them would be there. Uh, when I came after, you know, long time after my shift, another one would be there after work. No matter what time of day you were in Mrs. Williams' room, her daughters were there with her. And over the time, it, it took weeks. She was there for, you know, two to three weeks now. And and as we started to uh, have her there longer and longer, she started to wither and she started to kind of lose that fire that I initially saw. And I, I, I went into her one day because she looked really sad. And I said, you know, what can I do for you? And she and 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 who are you? And 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 just start, got to know her because because she had been so feisty and so angry for the first couple of weeks, and she was so angry every time they would make a mistake. Um, I was scared of her, and in that moment, we had this tender, uh, you know, moment of connection where she just basically told me who she was and how she used to really enjoy walking her dog out on the ocean of San Francisco mm. and, and be out there in the, in the breezy cold. And of course I was a new mother. I, I had just had a baby 
a couple months prior. And so I had this newborn at home and I would leave crack of dawn four in the morning. You know, I had to pump at work to make breastfeeding happen, that kind of thing. And I decided the next morning that I would go out and uh, see if I could visit the ocean on her behalf. And I, and I dug all around my house and I found um, this little jar and I went out into the ocean. Uh, this is dark, super dark, super scary. There was just homeless people and me um, out by the ocean. And I, and I walked out to the ocean. I could barely see where the water's edge was. And this particular beach is scary because it has an undertow that typically sucks people out if you get into the ocean. And uh, there's a lot of deaths that happen throughout the year because of that. And so I wasn't quite sure. I didn't want to get too close to it because I didn't know there's always a chance for a rogue wave, that kind of thing. And and I, and I tried my best to kind of see in the dark and see where the water was. And the water just kind of came up and flooded my feet, um, freezing cold. And I, <laughs> I gathered some water and sand and I just walked back to my car. And I go in that morning and, you know, I did, I had dried myself off and I go into her hospital room and she's, she's sleeping peacefully. And I just wake her up because we have to take vital signs in the morning before rounds. And she kind of blinks her, her eyes open and she looks at me blurried and she's like, good morning. And I said, I said, Mrs. Williams, I brought you some of the ocean. And she just starts to cry and I start to cry. And she said, thank you. Thank you, my dear. Yes, yes. It's the ocean. It's the ocean. Put it up there. Put it up there in the window so I can see it all day. And that gave her her fire back. And it was amazing to watch her regain her strength, start barking orders at people again, tell her, <laughs> tell everybody, I want to get out of this hospital. I'm tired of it. I want to get out of here. Send me home. I don't care. And she powered her way through the last final days and got herself home with her daughters. Yeah. Yeah. Even when you tell it now, it kind of, you know, wells up inside me. But, you know, you asked her, and, you know, I'm just quoting from the book, you say, what if you focus on something that makes you happy? What yes. normally makes you happy? Yes. And giving Mrs. Williams the opportunity to reflect on that and connect with that. And then you also say, um, you know, that, for, you know, this is my interpretation, of course, that the kindness and the care that you embodied in that story, you felt fully awake and alive, even mm -hmm. though it was dangerous out there and it was dark and cold and, you know, it was a risky beach, but you felt fully awake, a feeling that you said that you lost when you were just doing your rounds, you know, as, right. in the, in, as a medical student. So that says something to me really strongly about this, this need for us, for the connection um, and also for how we actually live out that which, which um, makes us come alive because, you know, that's a contagion effect, right? She that's also right. came alive by that. So That's right. I'm going. So, is there anything else? You know, what other insights or learnings for you? Um, you must you know, have had a few of those, Kyra. Yes, yes, and and I would say that the other sort of asterisk to add to your point um, is that we are so addicted to comfort right now, and there's yeah. no, there's zero way that we can embody anything without discomfort, hmm. and and we have to be 
friendly with our discomfort. Notice in that story, I'm terrified. I'm cold. It's unpleasant. I'm going out of my way. I'm getting up early. I need the sleep. I'm a medical student. I'm a new mom. I'm getting no sleep anyway. And I'm giving more of my sleep to this stranger, right? That's really my gift is, is my inconvenience, my, my discomfort. And she's mm. suffering and she's going through totally, you know, she's been healthy her whole life as a horse. She's been strong her whole life. And here she is facing her vulnerability and her weakness and her foreignness in being in this weird environment. And it just kind of institutionalizing her, you know? And so we have to really look for our edge of discomfort and go there and really invite that a little bit to even embody, to wake our bodies up, to wake our, our minds up, to do something different. Hmm? So very beautiful. So let's, um, let's now talk about some of the um, wonderful um, lessons, I would say, in the book. Um, and you focus a lot, you say that self-image rules us. Yeah. So I would love you to, um, you know, expand on that concept for us, Kyra. Absolutely. So, you know, as a change maker, and I know that you have a lot of change makers um, in your community and that are really, you know, tuning in and using this podcast to enhance their work. Uh, for all of us who are trying to change the behaviors of others, the self-image is the number one thing I should say that everybody should know about in terms of how it operates in the brain and what it does to either help you or block you. So think about every piece of clothing you have, where you live, you know, even all the tangibles in your, in your life, what you eat, what you don't eat, everything operates by one rule, which is, is it me or not me? And that is the precedent, that, that, that is the primary filter by which the brain understands the world around it or anything that's presented to it, whether it is a new program, a new job, a, a, a different change that's happening at work or in your life, um, you know, something that uh, you want to go towards or away from. It's all being filtered and reacted to by the me, not me. And then you get downstream of that, you get emotions, you get, uh, you know, thoughts and decisions, you know, but, but pre upstream of any of that is this me, not me filter. And so when people are designing change for other people, I find that they miss this a lot of times. Uh, for example, we did a project with doctors who were trying to help patients who had a terminal lung illness. It's a very rare lung disease. And the medicine that treats this illness produces, um, you know, extra weird uh, bowel movement issues. And the pulmonologists, the lung doctors were really not helping these patients because they had saw themselves as a lung doctor, not as a GI doctor, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and so that self-image kind of stopped and started and didn't treat holistically the patient's issues. And mm -hmm. so that's, that's an example of where we can, if we understand where somebody has a not me kick in, uh, we can help extend that or help them feel more comfortable uh, adopting change to, to be more helpful. Is that, may I ask a question, is that like, um, and it's not me, it's like, um, 
I that's not who I am. That doesn't fit with my well, my self image, I guess. So, um, so it's, I can't relate to that. And therefore, yeah. the chances of trying to um, help somebody change if it's not fitting with their own self image is just not going to work. Exactly. And it goes so far as to being completely invisible to you. So think oh. about products or uh, TV shows or, you know, when you, if you go check out at the grocery store, there's certain things, if you don't eat them on your diet, you don't even see them. They're not even visible yeah. to you at all. And so that's how good, because mm. the brain's got one, the brain's got one objective, save you energy. It's trying to save all and conserve all the energy it can to not have to think about anything it doesn't have to think about. So all of that stuff that it makes invisible is is not me. It's just, it's a category of convenience so that it doesn't have to deal with most of the world and it only filters for what is relevant. Hmm. Yeah. It's almost like there's a lovely, um, another quote, um, and I can't remember who said it now, like we see the world as we are. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I, I mean, I know a more narcissistic viewpoint um, also is operating, which is what's in it for me, because yeah. me is defined by certain things I value, certain things that mm-hmm. serve me, that make me feel pleasure, um, that avoid pain for me or reduced pain for me. And that's really what people are doing when they apply that filter, that question, inquiry around what's in it for me. Yeah. So would you talk to us a little bit about how um, we address this issue and um, identify the self-image and work with the not self-image because that's where the real change is, I guess. Yeah. Um, and you say that the self-image is the real client and our slow brain is the designer. Yeah. So, you know, fast brain, slow brain is a take, is, is a shortcut on uh, Daniel Kahneman's work on thinking fast and slow. It's mm-hmm. uh, in behavioral psychology, there's system one, which is, you know, your sort of autopilot and you're jumping to conclusions, all the shortcuts that are called heuristics and biases in your brain. So, so that your brain achieves its number one goal of saving energy. And then mm-hmm. the slow brain is when you actually solve problems. It's the gear in which you d- make decisions. Uh, you, you think the willpower comes through here, all those kinds of things. And so the slow brain really is the part of us that you know, tries to get the fast brain <laughs> to behave in a different way right? Because the slow brain is more methodical. It has the plan. It's the strategist. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, the the client is our fast brain. It's the part of us that's kind of running a million miles an hour, that's super distracted, and that's going to jump to conclusions and take shortcuts all day long. And the slow brain is the one that says, actually, if you do it this way, it'll be better. Or I'm going to put my shoes by the door because I want to go walking later. That kind of planning ahead is the slow brain side. Hmm. Great. I wonder if you have a story you can, you can share to illustrate that. I mean, putting your shoes outside the door is a good, that's a behavioral thing, right? Yeah. Um, I, I do it all the time. So, you know, I am the designer, <laughs> I am the designer of my own behavior and, and, uh, a core of that, because I, I, you know, obviously I've, I've had success in getting myself to do other things in my life, but the one that always gets away from me is my, my eating, 
and drinking, you know, talk about embodiment, like that, that's where I suffer the most with my connection between my slow brain and my fast brain. So what I do with my slow brain is lately, as I create, I got this big glass container with a spigot on it. And what I've been doing, cause I don't drink water. I don't drink enough water. I just don't. And I, I'm like a camel. I can go forever and not suffer because of it, but it doesn't mean it's healthy for me. So mm-hmm. I actually have taken the, this big jug and I chop up fruit and I put it in there and then I fill the water all the way to the top and I just keep filling the water for a couple of days on end before I throw the fruit out. And that is my new design for my fast brain, which just needs a grab and go thing and will not grab and go water if it doesn't taste better than normal. Uh, I, I have a sweet tooth. So having that fruit essence in there really is driving me to drink more water than I ever have before. So that's just one example, but I do it all the time. And so does my whole company. We actually have a habit formation app um, based on brain science. And this is one category within that app because uh, we've just, we've done all the neuroscience uh, on it and we've figured out like what works for fast brain, slow brain of eating. That's really cool. So I would like to talk about, you know, you're touching in on here on our, uh, our motivations to do things too. So you have a chapter in the book called Finally the Truth About Motivation. Oh, and yeah. you have this grid and you talk about, um, you know, stable motivation, unstable motivation. And you also talk about, um, um, what's the other one that, that goes emotion. with that? Strong emotion emotion. and weak emotion. Thank you. Thank you, Kyra. So um, help us understand how you work with that to help people understand their motivations and their emotions. Yeah, absolutely. So this motivation is such a garbage term in psychology and neuroscience because it has so many different ways that it operates in the brain. And so that chapter was gnarly. I had to close myself in a cabin for a week (laughs) to really sort through the science to describe it in a way that could become a useful tool for people. Cause my audience are people who change other people's behaviors. And so I wanted to give them a tool that could be an easy framework for them to really organize what it is that they're trying to do. And this is one of the most popular chapters of the book for that reason, because Mm. people really love the clarity that comes from it. So basically you have a two by two and you have stable motivation, unstable motivation, strong emotion, and weak emotion. And the basic premise is that we need to know that our motivation is either always on or not. And our emotion is either strong or weak, but cannot stay strong for very long because we Hmm. we tucker out. It's part of the slow brain and we can't feel fear for very long before our brain will be like, all right, I'm I'm tuckered out. I'm, I'm desensitized to that. So what we do is we organize behaviors into these four quadrants, if you will, and each quadrant is more potent and powerful than the next, and it will dominate the one below it. So for example, quadrant four, which is weak emotion and unstable motivation are things like, I think I'll set a goal, or I think I will... Uh, set an aspiration, you know, think of New Year's resolutions. So those kinds of mm-hmm. things, they, they get they get completely dominated by our life habits, you know, which is a quadrant two. You know, anything that is 
on autopilot that is going to happen as a default is going to roll right over our good intentions, right? Um, and, and the only way to make those competitive is to turn them into habits. And so how we got to creating a habit formation software or even, even getting into habits was we followed the science. The science says that anything that you want to do daily or weekly has to be practiced until it is a habit. And it, mm-hmm. and it has to be practiced frequently. It has to be practiced over a long period of time. So, you know, as you know, in the book, three weeks to a habit is not real. It's not real brain science. It actually takes about a year to form a habit. And unless it's as mindless as tying your shoe, it's not going to have a chance in your daily life to get the light Mm -hmm. of day or, or to happen as a default. Another great benefit of this book, of course, is that you have these practical exercises that people can do it themselves and measure themselves. Mm-hmm. So you offer stories, you offer theoretical and scientific support, and then you also give the opportunity for people to put it into practice for themselves. Yeah, that was important. So really good. Yeah, very good. Um, and do you, is there anything you'd like to um, help us understand regarding the difference between a behavior and a habit? Yeah, absolutely. So a behavior is in the brain, an event. It, it requires attention. It requires consciousness. It requires a trigger to make it happen. So think about somebody texts you a message and you text back. That's a behavior because it, mm-hmm. it's, it's event-based. Whereas a habit, like brushing your teeth for most of us, um, is something that you just do you just do it on a regular basis. You don't even think about it or, or taking vitamins for some people. Uh, I, you know, I, I knew that my vitamins were a habit the day I realized, oh, did I take them this morning or not? Because it was so mindless <laughs> and it was so automatic that it was officially a habit. Yeah. And so a habit takes no energy from the brain. And that's why the brain prefers those things for repetitive mm-hmm. behaviors. Mm-hmm. And that gives us a clue as to why we have to keep doing it so it becomes a habit. Yeah, and actually the neuroscience is different for a habit because if you repeat a behavior over and over again, basically it's a feedback loop to your brain. Hey, pave this road. I'm going to be driving on this road a lot. And the brain at some point takes you seriously and says, all right, we have hired a construction crew and we are going to put myelin, which is this white matter, (laughs) And make yeah. that super fast and slick for you so you no longer have to work very hard to do it. Great image, yeah. So um, where do we put our design skills to? Changing our behaviors or building new habits? You know, it just depends on what you want to do. If it's, you know, I'll take healthcare for example. If it's an annual visit with your doctor, that doesn't happen enough to be a habit. So then a better, a better thing is to set up a behavior and a trigger for the behavior. Every January, I'm going to schedule my, you know, doctor's appointment or whatever, my annual physical. Like that, mm-hmm. that's a behavior design. A habit design is something like, you know, every morning after I brush my teeth, I'm going to go fill up my water bottle. And having mm-hmm. it in a sequence, having it in a location and a time of day tends to be the most successful way that the brain anchors to forming a habit because it understands when and where you want this to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
talk about rebooting, which comes towards the end of the book, because, mm-hmm. you know, we all fall short from time to time, right? We fall off the rails and we get down on ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but hey, you know, we can lift ourselves up and start all over again. I think there's a song about that. That's <laughs> somewhere. right. <laughs> um, so um, this is an important piece to, and I think it's linked to our, you know, iterative mindset, you know, where we, you know, failures happen and you like, you do it again and you try it again. So, you know, that's part of the design thinking process, right? That you're not going to necessarily get it right the first time. So I see them as links. So I would love you to just talk a little bit about how you, how you talk to us about rebooting. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, since the book was written, we, we have definitely um, gone further to characterize something we're calling the iterative mindset. And iteration is one of these terms that's used a lot in software development and in design thinking, because mm-hmm. it takes multiple versions of something to get it right. You know, I mean, we, we've always known this, you know, everybody knows that the, the light bulb, um, Thomas Edison had a thousand different models before it actually worked, but nobody really pointed out that that process itself is magical to to continue to iterate, to continue to use iteration as a concept. And there's really no substitute for it, in fact. And, and, and the other thing that's beautiful is that iterators never fail. Iterators, people who iterate never fail. And, and my company is based on iteration. Whenever we run into a sticky place um, of, I don't know how we're going to do that. And, and somebody puts together a straw man and says, well, what if we do this? And we're like, eh, let's iterate on it. It, it, It's like a, it's like a compliment, you know, you did a great job, but we still Mm -hmm. need to continue to iterate. It's not an insult. It's just a really nice culture to establish for yourself as well as whoever you're working with or whoever your clients are. So, Mm -hmm. so rebooting to me is, is just a necessary part of the process. When, whenever you try to change something, you're going to have a phase where you're going to make a lot of headway. And then you're going to have a phase where you become disillusioned or inconsistent or hypocritical because you fall out of love with what you're doing, or you've become bored with what you're doing, or something disrupts what you're doing in some other way. And so having the philosophy of it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, I will either relapse or I will need to reboot and redesign this where I'll need to iterate on it. And I find that people who expect that to happen are so much more successful and so much more less, that uh, they're faster at getting things done than people who are completely surprised as if, as if it was never expected, you know, for this to fail you um, at mm-hmm. some point in the future. Yeah, that's a lovely mindset to have. Yeah. And so there are three things with rebooting. Um, you say, you know, you have the mindset that you're not bad if mm-hmm. this happens, you know, if, if, if something doesn't turn out the first way that you wanted or the second or the third or the fourth, how many <laughs> iterations you might need. Um, and you're not alone and there is a way out. I think they're really three nice kind of um, prompts to have. That's right. And, and, if you're, and if you're designing for another person, or even yourself, it's really important to have that, those three as your rubric, your checklist. Have I satisfied those three things? Because you're not going to get any movement, forward movement or re-engagement unless you fulfill those three needs. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and so um, I would like to ask you a closing question um, about how we might embody self-compassion. Mm. And before you respond to that, why, where might they go to find out more? So engagedin.com is probably the main place I would send everyone because that's the, that's the central hub for learning more about um, these tools, uh, whatever is coming out of my camp and my company's camp. And then freshtrytri.com uh, is going to be the software that we're building to help with habit formation. So in case folks have clients that they're trying to build ha habits with, that that is a very neuroscience-based approach and um, they can check it out as well. When will that be out? Uh, the, the app is out right now for healthy eating mm -hmm. habits and we are building other modules as well. Ah, super. So how might you respond to my inquiry around how we might embody self-compassion? Yeah, so I, I tell a story in the book a little bit about this, but the most important thing, if you if you have to have a fallback plan, if you have trouble with uh, having self-compassion, if you just want to remind yourself of self-compassion, the only thing I would say is place your hand on your heart on your chest and you don't have to do anything else. You don't have to think anything else. You don't have to think at all because just that gesture, that feedback loop that you've created with your hand and your chest will help you to feel more comforted. It's just biological and more in tune with yourself and more caring for yourself. It just is a caring gesture. And and we talked about those those uh, shortcuts in the brain. The, to the brain, the brain can't tell who's doing that. The brain can't tell who's hugging the body. If you hug yourself, it can't tell whether that's you or another person. All it does is register, I'm being cared for. So mm. it's just a real good shortcut. Uh, you can do it in the middle of a meeting, you know, to give yourself support. You can do it while you're driving. You can do it in the middle of the day. You can do it anywhere you are and you can be there for yourself and you don't have to memorize anybody's mantras or statements or famous quotes or anything um, or any science. You just do that and you're good. Oh, that is so beautiful. And you remind me that um, very often when you feel very touched or moved or connected, it seems to just be a natural response. We put our hand over our heart to say exactly. how touched we are. Exactly. So I'd like to conclude our conversation with that beautiful image. Wonderful. So thank you, Kyra. It's been such a joy to hear from you and to speak with you today. It's been such a joy to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much again for listening in to this particular episode of Positivity Strategist. And you can find the show notes on this episode on positivitystrategist.com slash PS120. And you know how much we would appreciate it if you wanted to share this particular podcast to people who you think might find value in it. Next time, we'll be hearing from another practitioner who will talk to us about appreciative embodiment and how, as a CEO of her organization, she is introducing appreciative embodying practices. Mm -hmm.
So I'm sure you're going to enjoy that one. <laughs>